You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Episode 22, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. If you're a first-time listener, thank you so much for joining me. Make sure you subscribe in your favorite podcast player. It is free. If you're a returning listener, thank you so much for coming back. You're the reason this show is becoming more popular. I really appreciate it. I'd also like to thank all my patrons at patreon.com slash theparadox. That's P-R-A-D-O-C-S. There you can become a supporting patron of the show, where all the money raised is used for the production and the promotion of the show. If you become a patron supporter at the second or third tier level, you will, of course, get a free gift at the end of the year, which we'll have to determine later on. Also, there'll be new bonus episodes and uh, material. There's already some there, but there'll be more soon. Access to that material can be had for just $2 a month, which is only 50 cents an episode. Quite the bargain. Today's show notes will be found at theparadox.com slash 022. There you can find links to all the ways to find Dr. Craig Wax and his articles and other information that we discuss in the show. So as far as the show, it's a very interesting show today. We're going to be discussing hospitals. Yeah, I know. We've talked about hospitals many times before, but today we're going to focus on hospitals and their special status as nonprofit entities. Most of us don't think of nonprofits as ones that generate billions of dollars of revenue, uh, spooling out millions to their directors. Uh, We mostly think of nonprofits as churches, think tanks, maybe charities like the Red Cross. And yes, there are certainly executives who make a lot of money there. I do want to point out that just because there are large salaries in hospitals or uh, with executive pay in other charities, I don't mean to say that that's unjustified pay or compensation. Uh, certainly to direct any sort of large organization and to direct their uh, activities and resources efficiently, uh, one probably needs to be very skilled, and sometimes the pay is justified. But I think we're talking about the focusing on the fact that hospitals enjoy a nonprofit tax status which can certainly cause a certain burden to a community. Although there's an economic benefit to having the jobs provided by hospitals, they certainly don't provide any sort of economic taxation. And so that tax burden has to be taken up by someone, namely the other businesses and individuals in the city or the community. So anyway, we're going to discuss that. We're also going to discuss Dr. Craig Wax and his fight against MOC, or in his case, OCC, which is for the osteopathic physicians. Finally, please be sure to catch Dr. Wax as he has his own radio show, which can be heard Thursdays online at rowanradio.com. And as I said, those links will be available in the show notes page at theparadox.com slash 022. So anyway, let's get started with the discussion on the nonprofit status of hospitals and his lawsuit against the AOA. Enjoy. Okay, welcome. This is Dr. Eric Larson to The Paradox. I'm joined today with Dr. Craig Wax, who's a family physician practicing family medicine and health through prevention and private practice in New Jersey. Hello. Thank you for having me on, Dr. Larson. Pleasure indeed. You're welcome. Thanks for joining me. Um, 
we're here to talk about two things. Initially, when I reached out to you, we're going to discuss um, your article that you had written about the hospitals and sort of their role in the, as far as nonprofits. I want to touch on that secondly, but first I'd like to talk about this lawsuit that sort of came to my attention maybe about four weeks ago. I've had on Dr. Meg Edison, whom you may be familiar with, and yep. we discussed a couple times on MOC. I've also had Dr. Wes Fisher, where we discussed the shenanigans of the uh, American Board of Internal Medicine. And you try uh, Dr. Paul Kempen as well. Yeah, I've actually, I've actually spoken to he's, Dr. Kempen. He's, he's one of the originals. <laughs> and, and, and he's an anesthesiologist, which is also yep. a great thing. And I think he's in Ohio now. Um, but anyway, we, were, we noticed uh, that you, you know, so for those who are not familiar, there are MDs and DOs. DOs are osteopathic physicians. MDs are allopathic. Just a little bit difference in training. We're both physicians and doctors. But um, we have different sort of large governing organizations, I guess you'd say. Um, with, for the osteopathic physicians, it's, it's AOA, is that correct? The, yeah, the American Osteopathic Association in Chicago, Illinois. Right. They all seem to be in Chicago, Illinois. They're kind of just congregating. <laughs> it is. Yeah. The, uh, the um, American Medical Association is there and multiple other organizations that uh, try to lay claim to being the voice of physicians. Right. Questionably, albeit. Right. And so one of the things that, of course, a lot of the, uh, we've talked about the MOC requirements, the main certification where physicians have to go, once you get your initial certification to residency, you have to continually do testing and more sort of busy work, we'll just call it, and to put sort of a shorthand. Um, and you really can't practice medicine very easily, uh, certainly if you're in a lot of specialties that are hospital-based um, or surgery-based for the most part. I mean, you could, there are some things where you can work outside where you don't need hospital privileges. But for the most part, you're going to need to have, you're going to need to have hospital privileges. You're going to work th with third-party payers, either through government payers like Medicare and Medicaid or with, um, you know, large private insurers like Blue Cross, Blue Shield, and Aetna and whomever. And without following MOC, it's really hard to practice for most specialties without it. And so... Um, right. And if I, if I may add to that, that... Um, on the MD or allopathic side, they call it MOC, maintenance of certification. On the osteopathic side, not to be outdone, they call it OCC, osteopathic continuous certification. So just to throw terms out there. Okay, I wasn't familiar with that, so it's interesting. Um, and so one of the things that a lot of physicians are pushing back on now is you're, you're, you have this private organization that's basically forcing you to do all this stuff against your will and with no signs of any benefit and obviously cause all kinds of stress, burnout, all kinds of problems outside of Right. And, and as you rightfully point out, um, uh, insurance companies can inquire um, and can discriminate against you if you don't have certain certifications, as can hospital employers and other employers, government employers. Um, it, it makes you considerably less marketable. The issue is, is that not only is it costly and expensive on a yearly basis for the physician and their practice, it interferes with their ability and time to care for patients because they have to take time away to do these things um, and resources away to do these things. Also, all of the, uh, th there's no body of data that says that any of it is useful. And a lot of physicians are saying, well, if all this isn't useful and it costs me time and treasure to do, why am I taking time away from valuable practice and interaction with patients to pursue these things just to make certain physician so-called governing organizations, close quote, uh, <laughs> rich. And, and it's not, you know, it's become, it's become a moral, ethical, and practical issue for all of us. Right. And, and uh, it's important to point out, too, that if, if, it were so, if there was so much overwhelming evidence that were proving that it was efficacious or useful uh, to continue this certification process, there's no reason that you would have made it initially, uh, you would grandfather people in and say, well, you don't have to do it. Only the new people coming out, the ones who are most, are closest to their training and not the people who are, you know, the farthest from their initial training who are going to be the, the rustiest, you'd say. Right, because there is constant change in medicine. And I believe, you know, not that I can speak for all physicians, but I believe that most of us, including myself, 
feel that ongoing information and interaction is important, but I think it should be done in a very personal and individualized way, not like a sheep on a farm being herded off to, to slaughter, rather than uh, what states do for licensure, which is CME, continuing medical education credits. And that way we can spend, you know, uh, dozens to a hundred hours pursuing our, our bliss and things that benefit our patients um, at our own time and expense uh, and not being forced to do so for things that aren't relevant to our practices. Right. And I mean, the things that are actually going to be helpful to you, everyone, I think, should recognize where their weaknesses and their strengths are and you know where your practice is, right? Obviously, if you're not practicing a certain type of medicine, there's no point learning more about it. It's be, it'd be better to focus on what you actually are going to be treating uh, in your actual everyday practice. Right. Well, I'll give you an, an example from, uh, that, that is useful like for an, an example. Let's say an orthopedist who basically is, you know, as I plainly describe it to patients, pretty much uh, a, a contractor that, that does construction, yeah. that does bones and joints and those kinds of things. And that Carpenters. way it's understandable to patients. Now, you learn about all the bones and all of the joints. And maybe, you know, uh, 50 years ago, um, a, an, uh, an orthopedic surgeon physician would be responsible for all of that nowadays that there's such specialization. You've got guys that just do hand surgery. You've got guys that just do knees, guys that just do hips, shoulders, um, uh, spine, various other joints. I mean, you wouldn't want a hand surgeon necessarily doing your spine or a spine surgeon necessarily doing your hand or replacing your knee. Now, when they came up with all of this profiteering nonsense, uh, and at the quote public good close quote, which I think is questionable at best, um, they are trying to force people who just do knees and hips to 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 do hand and to do spine and other things um, with regard to testing. And right. literally, you could fail the test if you're super specialized, whereas. Perhaps you're the best at that joint or at that issue. So perhaps that's an example that would work for yeah. people's minds. And so uh, there's a lawsuit that is being started. And we talked about this briefly in one in a previous episode, actually two episodes ago in episode 20 uh, with Dr. Thank F you for the oblique reference. <laughs> well, we discussed you obliquely in that episode. I think we did by name. Oh, thank you. But uh, we talked about Dr. Wes Fisher, who is, who is, uh, who, I guess you'd say it was one of the spearheading this this lawsuit against the American Board of Internal Medicine and others, which have not been yet um, identified, I guess. in the Right. And if anybody's interested in following with Dr. Fisher, um, Dr. Marion Mass, Dr. Niran Al-Agba, and myself that are actually on the board of Practicing Physicians of America, which we call PPA, um, you can go to practicingphysician.org. And you can follow up, you can join, and you can join the fight against maintenance of certification and potentially osteopathic continuing certification uh, in a productive way. Right. And, and I think it's, uh, it's important, I've mentioned this before in the show, but it's important for people who aren't physicians to get involved in, in, in get involved or at least be aware of the, what's going on because, you know, physicians are treating everybody. And so... Just because you're not a physician doesn't mean this doesn't affect you and your health. So you actually, so now we're going to look at this differently in the sense that there's an allopathic and that's sort of what Dr. Fisher's working on. You actually would join in a class action suit on the osteopathic side because from what I understand, I'll let you go into the details, that as an sure. osteopathic physician, you had to be a member of the AOA in order to get credentialed, right? And then, so you somehow, there's a Correct. lawsuit. So not only things, initially... Not only initially when you're board certified, let me just back up one step just in general. So board certification was originally came into play to say that now things are getting complicated um, 50 years ago or so, uh, that there's a lot of different physician, quote, specialties, close quote, that there were internships and residency programs and fellowships that were helping to develop a physician skills into a, a teaching program that was formalized and hospital-based potentially. And what wound up happening was 
the certification board um, would make sure that your residency training was complete. And the marker for that completeness was the board certification exam, of course, the much dreaded board certification exam. And I can say that for myself and many other physicians, that was part of the process. Right. Now, when we're out in practice for, for, 10, for 10 years or what have you, and all of a sudden, the governing boards decide, you know what, that's not adequate either. Every eight years, you guys uh, are, are spoiling like bad food, so we're going to have to recertify you for thousands of dollars and potentially a thousand hours of time over eight years, which is sort of a ridiculous assertion. The issue that we took on with this lawsuit um, uh, was a, a restriction of trade issue with the AOA. So for the 25 years I've been involved, they have forced me to be a member of the organization for approximately $800 a year. Uh, and if I quit or dropped, they would cancel my board certification and fail to renew it. And, and that is an issue with restriction of trade. That is to say, an organization can't take away your ability to work just because you won't pay them. I mean, unless I guess you're a federal employee or a <laughs> other unionized employee. But obviously, physicians and unions haven't mixed in the last hundred years um, because of uh, uh, government, say so. But that also may be changing in the future now that the government has forced everyone into the service, more or less, of hospitals and ACOs with what I call the Unaffordable Careless Act of 2010, because it was both unaffordable and careless, um, wasn't tested. And, you know, but that's a whole nother, a whole nother show topic. Oh, yes. But with this lawsuit, our goal was solely to eliminate the tie between AOA membership, which was forced at the point of the arrow of taking away your board certification. So in doing so, we did um, some data gathering and discovery work over the course of two years, and um, the, we brought two suits, actually. So one was in New Jersey, because the four of us are uh, New Jersey and area physicians that represent the class. And we also brought a federal lawsuit, because there's a, uh, a mini Sherman Antitrust in New Jersey, and there's, of course, Sherman Antitrust mm -hmm. federally. Right. So we brought them both, and and our goal was to do it to do it loud and to do it here and to make it stick. And uh, what wound up happening over two years was we've had several meetings at the federal courthouse, Camden, New Jersey, and said uh, to the judge that you know we believe our case has merit. And of course, the other side does what they always do, and they say, nope, the case doesn't have merit, and move it to our backyard. So um, we wrote a paper, they wrote a paper, and the judge came back in a 26-page opinion saying, not only does the case have merit, you also can't move it to Chicago just for your convenience. <laughs> yeah, That's not acceptable. So obviously the judge believed that it had merit and should be heard, um, and that was uh, important. So the AOA knew we were serious at that point. So there was a negotiation process of like, well, what to do here? And uh, we went back and forth. Of course, in, in, in my head, I would like to have eliminated the ongoing maintenance of certification, osteopathic continuous certification, supplanted by CME that, that worked for 100 years um, and allows physicians flexibility and patients flexibility and the entire industry flexibility. Yeah. So that was my interest, that physicians are professionals. And we have a responsibility, but... It should be a reasonable one, not an unreasonable one. But the purpose of the lawsuit was to eliminate the tie. And then the question became, uh, well, since the judge felt this had merit, he gave it to an associate judge and said, work this out. Have these parties work this out and try and eliminate a, a lengthy, expensive lawsuit for everybody. Mm -hmm. So we had a, a lengthy, expensive two-year negotiation <laughs> process instead sounds like a law so, i mean that it certainly beat six years and uh, you know yeah uh, and blood sweat tears money lawyers guns things yeah right. but um but at any rate uh, my sense of humor at play there uh well, warren zivon so, for us 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, having said all of that, uh, I do musical references too, so forgive me. I know very um, musical music. I just know that one song. <laughs> right, 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 right. Lawyers, guns, and money. Um, having said all of that, so we sat down with them several times, and we spoke to them, and they yelled at us, and we spoke to them, and they yelled at us, and uh, moved forward with uh, some things that we thought were accomplishable that would benefit not just the four of us, of course, but the entire population of DO physicians that were forced to be members and members of the class, so to speak. So what we wound up getting through the settlement, which uh, we've signed off on, they've signed off on, I believe the, the judge is in the process of, of, of signing off on um, with regard to the AOA restriction of trade lawsuit settlement one is the complete elimination of the tie between board certification and AOA membership. Our argument is membership should be optional. If you want to be a member, great. If you don't want to be a member, you shouldn't be forced to be a member for approximately $800 a year against your will and wishes. Mm-hmm. So the other things, we got some, uh, uh, some parallel things as well that the articles that have been out there may not have covered. So in addition to the elimination of the tie between board certification and membership, another one is reduced dues for those who choose to stay members of the AOA by $90 a year for at least three years. Um, And you can't really do anything enduring about that. The board gets to choose what they want after a time frame. The other is, is to waive the additional $90 board certification fee, which was forced on us by, uh, in addition to the AOA membership, which is now severed. Um, contribution or continuing contribution of $2 million a year for the next three years to the ongoing osteopathic physician and osteopathic medicine awareness campaign. So to kind of bring up uh, uh, what is osteopathic medicine, who are osteopathic physicians, why do you have a choice, and and, um, why is it in your interest to potentially seek their care. So that's something that was important. The other one was an establishment of a committee of private independent practice people, uh, not academicians or employed folks, to advise the AOA board for a period of three years. Um, We wanted it to be a a, a standing committee, but their policies dictated that it had to be an ad hoc committee. Uh, So, you know, there were some issues there. There's always a give and a take with a negotiation. Right. to offer AOA members that choose to stay two included CME courses up to 12 credits as part of their membership. So we, we wanted to have the AOA give something that didn't cost them much, but it meant a lot to members of the class. Yeah. So another thing was elimination of the distinction between in-person and online CMEs for the purposes of AOA membership, because the AOA also has CME requirements. Um, and they're, the uh, at the moment, the exclusive reporter, historian reporter of those things. Oh, so that's, that's another issue as well. So those were the primary things that we got in the settlement. Of course, we didn't get everything they, we wanted. And, and they didn't make us go away like they wanted. Yeah. So, but now physicians, DO osteopathic physicians, have the opportunity to be a member, continued or not be a member, and still have, you know, access to their board certification. Um, and the, the one big thing I think that this did additionally, besides telling them that they had to observe state law and federal law, no kidding, um, was to tell them that osteopathic physicians are serious about our professionalism and we won't be bullied um, from Chicago or anybody else, which is important um, to me. And and, and the last uh, thing that it did was it sort of opened the door. I mean, it now created a possibility for physicians to, to sue their boards. I mean, the okay. AOA um, owns all of the specialty boards in all the specialties. Unlike on the MD side, the AMA does, does no such thing. It's ABMS, the American Board of Medical Specialties, that kind of is the conglomeration of things, not the AMA. But on right. the AOA side, the AOA years ago took all their boards on, um, took their power and their money, 
and uh, and basically is 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 the one mammoth entity that certifies DOs, and that's why um, having this lawsuit uh, go go to completion um, as settlement or in in the courts was so important to all physicians, including MDS, who may feel it was unrelated, but we've opened the door to these things for uh, mock proceedings against ABMS. Oh, definitely. I mean, if you, as soon as you you see something like this, I mean, I got to imagine lawyers everywhere are like licking their chops because it, there's a, there are tens, not hundreds of millions of dollars that are sitting in these, in these organizations that could be accessed by lawyers right? Uh, in class action suits. So I would think that these organizations got to be a little bit worried. Well, and, and, and my thought is, is rather than worry um, or batten down the hatches and become more entrenched, but to be more open and say, you know what, we really got to start talking to our certifiees um, and we've really got to develop a relationship with them because if we continue the adversarial relationship that we've had over, you know, dozens of years, uh, that's going to result in uh, a massive uh, blood and money shed. And that's not what any of us wants. You know, at the end of the day, we want to be the best physicians possible. We want to be free to pursue our bliss. We want to be available to our patients and we don't want to be bullied by anybody. And that includes um, governing boards and government for that matter. Right. I mean, if you look at it, I mean, as a physician, and this would be for any, you know, any sort of any profession, but you would imagine your specialty, your specialty societies are there advocating for you because there are a lot of people who are not fans of physicians and they're looking to, you know, push us around or whatever, uh, employ us or regulate us. If we, if we're at war with our own bodies that are meant to protect us and to sort of our professional interests, we're really in trouble. So it, it's in everyone's interest. I mean, you'd think for us to get along and to try and work together, because like I said, there are enough, there are enough sharks in the water to start making some extra ones, which we are necessary. Right. But, but when it comes to power and money, a lot of unseemly things happen between, you know, for example, our state capital of uh, Trenton here in New Jersey and Washington, DC, the yeah. know, uh, capital of our country. And it, it really not only muddies up the water, there's always a, a power and money grab. And, that's, and that really shouldn't be. I mean, you know, ideally, you know, physicians have always held to the oath of Hippocrates and the osteopathic oath, which is a takeoff on that on, on our side. Um, and it's not appropriate to change it or to modify it or to modernize it to make it easier for these big groups and bodies and government to to bastardize what we're doing because we're doing something really noble. We're we're making a living helping people, and and I think to me that's the most noble profession for me personally. Yeah, no, I th- and I think most people who go into medicine are in it to because they like those those personal relationship. They like to establish that intimate. Um, relationship with pa- with patients to try and help someone to get through sometimes the most difficult crisis they face in their life. And and I were you at my osteopathic interview in <laughs> 1990? No, I was um, not. You, you must have been there because that's the exactly the, the the things that I said, and I still believe in my heart. Yeah, I I mean, I, going to I go to I do the uh, interviews. I've done some interviews for medical students or applicants for medical school here at Michigan State University. And I mean, that's pretty much the sentiment of everyone. Now, I, you know, I suppose they're just saying what they think they should say, but ultimately I think people really believe that. I mean, when I talk to medical students, they're not in it. They're, they're not in it to make a buck. I mean, they're in it because it's. Right. Well, little do they realize it's going to gobble up 11 years initially of their life and a half a million dollars that they may or may not have. Right. No. So, <laughs> it's 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 a, it's a really system. huge investment, and to me, if you make that kind of investment, you need to know what's on the other side, and you shouldn't be bullied by organizations that 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 say they speak for you and they don't, um, or may not at least, or government entities, and that's something that we're fighting to this day. So, to transition, then let's talk about government entities and large organizations. 
And you wrote a very interesting article that I re- reached out to you to uh, try and discuss because, uh, you know, I at, for medicine today is very different than I probably even like 1980. But th- most hospital systems, and it's you're showing your age. Okay. I'm sure, but we but all have fact, an age. But I, but I think the fact that one even says a hospital system suggests that it's a very different entity than it was in the past, right? It's not used to be just. Oh, there's no question. Government has, has empowered them to lead and, and they're quite expensive and inept at leading. Right. And so let's talk about hospitals and um, when most hospitals and we'll say hospital systems in this country are nonprofit organizations, there are some for profits. And and that nonprofit is of course in quotes. Well, right. Sorry. I, and the, the difference is, between profit and nonprofit nowadays has changed a lot. Right. And, and I think that's kind of what I'm, what I'm driving at. Let's, let's discuss if you can just take us on a little history lesson of how hospitals sure. that were at one time, uh, when we talked about group purchasing organizations back in episode five with Dr. Mass, we were discussing um, the fact that hospitals were very small organizations. They were philanthropic. They were truly nonprofits. I mean, they're like, you know, Red Cross, they were, they were, tiny well we'll go go back to the beginning you know yeah probably um, before then the prior to the founding of the united states in 1976 um the first hospital was founded um and became the university of uh, pennsylvania health system uh, in centuries (laughs) later but in 1751 and that's literally probably 40 minutes from where i sit in my office at this moment um in southern new jersey so it's it's very near and um, sometimes dear, depending <laughs> on the, the lenses you use to look at it. But the idea was was to care for those, and I'm going to quote um, uh, Thomas Bond and Benjamin Franklin, to care for the sick, poor, and insane who were wandering the streets of Philadelphia. So literally, um, yeah, no puns or jokes at the present day circumstances or situation in our major city nearby. But um, it it was a major undertaking to say that, you know, hey, a bunch of volunteers are going to get together in a tax-free building to care for people at everybody's own cost and and trouble just because it's potentially the right thing to do. So that's how it all started. And a lot of the community hospitals that came up in our country were, you know, uh, a doctor and potentially a banker somewhere and somebody came up with the idea of, hey, let's care for people and let's find a way to make this work. Now, again, we've gone from from that volunteer model to for-profit entities and even the entities that are not for profit pay their CEOs many millions of dollars a year. And again, I'm not against free markets uh, and competition. But this is neither free market nor competition. This is an issue where, you know, everybody has to go there. There's really no choice. It's $1,000 to walk into an ER. Um, There's lots of expensive uh, things that they have to do to to deal with insurance. And they have what's called facility fees. I mean, I'll give you an example. In our community, um, to get a spine x-ray to look for scoliosis or curvature of the spine, at a local place, it's about $128. And if you go for a cash price or what the insurances are paying, it's $38. So the, the range is somewhere between 38 and 138 just to pick something. Mm-hmm. Sure. Now, at this very same hospital that started out um, as a volunteer organization in Philadelphia um, and is now the, the, the University of Pennsylvania Health System, which owns Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, this very same x-ray, uh, spine x-ray, this is two pictures um, uh, that cost $128, and it was beat down to 38 for the minimum if you were paying cash or if you were an insurance company having a special sweetheart deal with the hospital or the entity. Hospitals have what they call facility fees. So we had to pay $40 for the radiologist to read the x-ray, which I think is, is, is rightful and reasonable. Certainly, expertise is worth something. The facility fee for that same $38 x-ray at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, part of the University of 
Pennsylvania healthcare system was probably should have a drum roll. At some <laughs> I point, wish I had it. Yeah, one thousand one hundred dollars. <laughs> so that thirty-eight dollar X-ray, which included a physician's time and effort in reading it, and all of the other things that go into an X-ray, thirty-eight dollars at University of Pennsylvania's Children's Hospital of Philadelphia was one thousand one hundred and forty dollars. Ridiculous. Totally ridiculous. I mean, why should it be a thousand percent more? I mean, <laughs> right. you know, I, I expected that it would be two or three times the price because Philadelphia is an expensive place to do business. Right. There are the multiple tax issues. You've got people with no insurance, no ability to pay taxpayer burdens and all these kinds of things um, and, and every government possible regulation to comply with. But why in the world should a $38 or even a $128 x-ray cost $1,140 at America's first hospital in the nation? <laughs> right. So for it, an it makes no sense, whatever. And for an entity that is not paying any taxes. I mean, that correct. It's so-, so they, so they avoid all of the taxes. So, you know, where I practice, there's a, a hospital moving to our town because Having six hospitals within 30 minutes and 12 hospitals within 45 minutes isn't enough. They're building one in our town. They're closing an older one and building it here. Um, they're taking up valuable space. I don't believe necessarily that they'll be adding to the care in the community because we're just so overwhelmed with hospitals in our in, in the northeast region of the country anyway. Um, I can speak for where I live and where I've practiced and trained. And they will pay no usable taxes to our township and they will create lots of burdens in doing so. They'll, they'll need water, they'll need sewer, they'll need electric, they'll need roads, they'll need us to hire police officers, they'll need for us to hire fire um, people. Not only that, we'll need a $2 million fire truck to be able to put out um, uh, high floor um, fires, which we don't have now. So. It, it it just it's it smacks of government and um uh, and and a private partnerships that advantage the government private partnerships, not the taxpayers or the people they pretend to serve. Right, and I and I think it's important when people think of nonprofits. I think if most people don't think of hospitals, they they will if they sort of think about it for a second. But most people think of things like the Red Cross, the Salvation Army. Um, entities that are, you know, soup kitchens, those things I think are, are churches. I mean, certainly the, the main one probably. And so if you look at the amount of uh, resources required to run a city or community, um, obviously if there's an, there's a, most places I think use property taxes to pay for a large amount of the services within their uh, community. Welcome to New Jersey. Right. Yeah. Well, I, New Jersey's worse than most. <laughs> than most it used to be worse in Michigan. They yeah, well, everybody in New Jersey puts their finger in the air and goes, "We're number one." Unfortunately, it's taxes. <laughs> and uh, so, I, I think it's important for people to think for a second that if there's an, a large section of land, let's say a really expensive portion of land that maybe like is downtown, that's probably like the, some of the highest, uh, you know, most expensive real estate, that is that is not paying any taxes, that. Right. And that and that cheats the taxpayers, because not only do the taxpayers are, are, are not getting any rateables or due for what they're getting, they're putting in tax dollars to subsidize this thing that's giving them no rateables in return. Right. So I mean, it's, it, it doesn't make any sense any longer. Perhaps in 1751 to maybe 1900, it made some sense. But in the last hundred years, they've become these profit machines. In fact, the article, which I think drew you to some of my work in Medical Economics Journal, is the American Hospital from Volunteer Charity to Tax-Exempt Patronage Pit. I, I, I tried to sum it up in a, in a, in a title. It's a good, uh, it, yeah, it's good for headlines for like a Twitter or something. Um, so I think it's real important people just to think for a second that if there's a, that if there's a certain amount of service that need to be paid for in a town, and maybe let's say it's $10 million, if you have a, a large entity that's using a lot of it, that's not putting any money in, effectively your tax rates are higher 
that you are subsidizing that organization. I know lots of people say, well, all tax credits are okay because it's cutting taxes, but it's not really. If you still have the same amount of services and expenses, someone is paying those taxes and likely it's you. And so also with these new health systems, uh, now as hospitals- Right, I think those are the two things that I think conventional wisdom says have to happen, death and taxes. Right, yeah. And, and an important thing with in communities now, as you find these hospitals, as they start buying up um, physician offices, all those physician offices are now turned to nonprofit centers. And so the property taxes that were generated in those areas are now gone, effectively. Well, uh, why should I, as a private, solo, independent family physician, trying to um, uh, compete against all of these tax-exempt and tax-advantaged uh, government, pseudo-government, private government entities, why should I have to compete with that? I mean, in a real competitive free market, which healthcare isn't and medicine, the practice of medicine isn't and hasn't been in a hundred years, frankly, and we could discuss the history of all of that and, and why and what happened with third parties and government intervention. But it should be competitive. I mean, I have no problem in competing with anybody, but but it has to be fair. Um, they have their advantages. I have mine. Great. But if you advantage them um, and make my costs higher, I can't provide the service. And then uh, not only that, I can't pay my taxes. I can't feed my family. And I can't um, give the community something that it wants and needs. I, I can't do any of those things. And my five employees and the billing company that I use all get unemployed as well. Right. So how did we get there? I mean, how did we get to this point now where these hospital systems are buying up all these physician practices? Uh, I mean, I know part of it has to do with the, the Healthcare Act of 2010, but how did Medicare, Medicaid, I suppose it was more Medicare probably in 1960 that sort of accelerated this process? Correct. Correct. So... As I said, I mean, it's, it's a whole hour uh, on its own, actually. But it all started in World War II with, uh, after the War Powers Act. I think it was 1941 or 1942, where the government said to private businesses, we're in a war. You can't raise what you're paying your people, your, your executive brass. And, and they were like, well, how are we going to keep our brass here. I mean, how, how are we going to be competitive? And the government said, well, you can offer tax-free benefits like tax-free health insurance, life insurance, and, and all of that tax-free benefit was born around World War II. Little did we know that it would take off, and by 1965, most of America would have health insurance, whereas when it, prior to that, there were, almost wasn't any health insurance because there was no there was no call for it. There was no there wasn't much advantage to it. So now that it's tax advantaged, which was a, a government innovation, um, third parties came up. And over the last you know seventy five years uh, into the nineties, third parties uh, took advantage of the situation. And in 1965, the government created Medicare and Medicaid. And there were actually groups and physicians who fought that because they knew that once the government put its mighty feet into all of the industries that are healthcare, it would never again allow the patient and physician to interact in a personal way without prying eyes and somebody else stealing the resources and trying to control the interaction. So 1972, during the Nixon administration, they had put out the HMO Act. Well, what's an HMO? Well, it's called a health maintenance organization, but it's not much about that. It's more of a, you know, a, a money and power grubbing organization that profits off patients' hardships and physicians' hard labor. And then bringing it forward, um, 1996 timeframe, uh, there was HIPAA, the Health uh, Information Portability and Privacy Act, so they called it. But basically, HIPAA spells out that the government and third parties are exempt from any penalties for stealing or using or insisting right. on your in, 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 information. In fact, Dr. Um, in fact, um, uh, uh, Twyla Braze actually has written a. Uh, a great book. She's with the, um, uh, I think it's the cchfreedom.org on the web. 
she's written a great book about um, your privacy being stolen. That's just uh, a phenomenal piece. And, and it started with HIPAA, which she opposed. And it went on through the government paying everybody to um, take on electronic health records. Electronic health records sounds like they'd be a good thing. But and to ask any physician or other healthcare person that uses them over the last 10 years of the government mandating them. And the book by um, Twyla Brace actually is called Big Brother in the Exam Room, The Dangerous Truth About Electronic Health Records. And the other book I want to mention that was uh, published by a friend of mine that's actually a JD um, and MD, so he's a physician and, and, a, a, and a lawyer as well, um, uh, Dr. David Hyman at Georgetown University wrote a book with the Cato Institute called Overcharged, Why Americans Pay Too Much for Healthcare. And the upshot is government policies and third parties. And that's how all of that pretty much came about. The, the last part I should mention is, you know, um, ACA, um, which was called uh, unofficially Obamacare. A lot of people were trying to discourage and disparage it using that name. Uh, but having said that, I called it the Unaffordable Careless Act because in the last eight years, it has been unaffordable and it was carelessly cobbled together. It was pieces from Hillary Care in 1992 that were failed. Right. Um, and all of the third parties, um, uh, pharmacy benefits managers, uh, general purchasing organizations, um, hospital health systems, everybody who's got their money in trying to get government and uh, patient care money, um, they've got their hands all out. And the government has mandated everybody pay them, which is one of the most absurd anti-constitutional things I've heard in my short half-century life. Right. And I, I think it's important, too, when we go into the, to the doctor's office, if you'll, you'll hi, sign a HIPAA form, and actually, if you're a pharmacist or even like the dentist and stuff, and it is, it is always sold, and you're signing a form saying, you know, that basically this protects your right to privacy, and, you know, HIPAA says we can't say your name out loud. Well, guess what? That was all, ethically, that was already how we... That's how we were already trained to, to behave before. You're not supposed to talk about patients right. and their families and stuff. No one did that. I mean, it just wasn't, it, it's, that was part of the, that's part of the confidentiality agreement with. with yep, no elevator talk. So, I mean, that. you don't know who's standing behind you. So just codify into federal law, which, okay, if that was what the whole law did, I don't think anyone probably would have been that upset with it, but it's, it's all the other parts. Like you said, it makes it, it really added the, a layer of exemption for, from wrongdoing or uh, snoopiness. It, it's been a progression of what the government has done to all the aspects of, of healthcare and all of its involved industries. In fact, Groucho Marx, um, <laughs> That's um, a great way to end. <laughs> almost 80 years ago, said, politics is the art of looking for trouble, finding it everywhere, diagnosing it incorrectly, and applying the wrong remedies. Yep. And I think that has summed up medicine for the <laughs> from as long as I've been around. Um, Sorry about that, Chief. No, you know what? That's okay. You know, we're here to solve problems. We're here to, we're here to, to expose them. And I mean, I think I... Do, do you know what solves problems? What's what that? solves what's problems that? are people... Uh, that are willing to put themselves out to do the right thing. Like, yeah. for example, if I may, people in DPC, direct primary care, where the patient forgoes all insurance and all government entities and directly contracts with the patient. The patient is the person who gets the attention, the time, the service, and pays a reasonable fee that's mutually agreed to, where everything in our society should be that simple because it keeps it, it keeps it inexpensive, it makes it efficient, and it provides you with competition, which makes you the best. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's kind of like an agreement, you do, any other business that you uh, encounter, <laughs> it's, it, it's sort of correct. Just, Every, uh, everything, but, but, but medicine and health care, yeah, <laughs> you know, there's a different the set of rules for them, you know? Yeah. Well, I think uh, I do think it's changing, and I think it's I think it's going to I think it's getting better in some ways, and I think the um, ability things like podcasts like this, I think articles in the web, we have ways of talking about things that 
people before didn't really know anything about. And, and it's harder to keep things under wraps, I think, than before. Can so I plug I, my radio show here? I was going to say, I was going to say, how can, <laughs> thank you. How can we hear more about you? And where I know we can find you on Twitter at, at Dr. Craig Wax. Where right. else can people yeah. find you? So people can find me in, in various places. So Instagram for um, good health, diet, and exercise things would be the at symbol, as you said, um, Dr. Craig Wax, D-R-C-R-A-I-G-W-A-X. And Twitter is the same at Dr. Craig Wax. I'm also on Facebook at Craig M. Wax, D-O-L-L-C, which is the business entity in which I practice. My own personal website is healthisnumberone.com, all spelled in words. Health is number, N-U-M-B-E-R-O-N-E.com. It's both my philosophy and my website. And importantly, Thursdays at 5.30 Eastern time, one can hear me on 89.7 WGLS-FM, Rowan Radio, um, with my show, Your Health Matters. You can also uh, catch it on the web if you're not in the uh, what they call the Delaware Valley of uh, southern New Jersey, northern Delaware, and southeastern Pennsylvania. You can go to rowanradio.com, R-O-W-A-N, radio.com, and hear Your Health Matters, where I interview doctors like yourself, Dr. Larson, and other thought leaders in our industry and in our world to try to solve the problems that, that patients bring in many different aspects. Well, thanks so much for all you've done. Thank you for taking on the AOA and not being af- afraid of them and uh, blazing a potentially new path for resistance to, to these uh, entities that are trying to control things and not really help patients, but just sort of just enrich themselves. Well, thank you, Dr. Larson. And thank you for all you've done as well, um, both as a, an independent practicing physician and Uh, a free spirit that feels that this information is so vital that you're willing to put yourself out to bring it to people and make it accessible um, so that they can understand it and use it in their daily lives. So thank you, Dr. Larson. My pleasure. Thank you so much for being on. And again, all these uh, links and all this information, including the article we discussed today, will be on the show notes page at theparadox.com. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.